You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. So we are back again. We are. We're rounding out um, our time at the joint meetings of the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Biblical Literature in Denver, Colorado. And we may have saved the best for last. I think we did. And so I'm very excited about this. Uh, we, I've been talking with our guest uh, for a while, trying to figure out how do we make this happen? How do we make this happen? And in fact, I, I texted them at one point, they were out of the country somewhere in Asia. And, um, you know, I thought my texts weren't going through and sent them uh, a Twitter message. They were like, oh, I'm, I'm out of the country. I'm like, oh, right. That makes sense. Okay. Cause I get, I get, I get very like anxious <laughs> I, I when, when people don't respond to my texts. Oh, oh, I know. Like the texts are not going as blue, they're going as green. And so, <laughs> it's rude. and so I'm, I'm, you know, I, I kind of got, you know, I know I mean, you, you and I had to have a very big conversation when we first started being in deep relationality together because you didn't understand why there were times where I didn't I didn't respond yeah. in the immediate. Yeah. And I explained to you my process by yeah. which I, you yeah. know, manage texts and my ADHD has a lot to do with that. Yes. And so I, I understand. Yeah. I understand that yeah. tendency. So, so very excited. And, and then also, I mean, our listeners won't get to enjoy this, but we get to enjoy this. We also get to share a meal together yeah, tonight. Which is one of so, our favorite things yeah, to do. So I'm very friends. excited about this. So we are really excited um, to welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast, Carmen Lansdowne. Um, Carmen is, um, among many other things, the first female moderator indigenous moderator um, to the United Church of Canada. And um, that... Um, it, it, it's, it is an important space to hold because there have been indigenous moderators for the United Church. Um, one, you did indigenous moderator who was male. Um, but um, not only do you um, get to kind of lead this um, remarkable group of humans, but um, you also get to do it from um, kind of bringing the fullness of your um, indigeneity with you, which is beautiful. So Carmen, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. We're really thrilled you're with us. So excited to be here. Um, why don't you tell folks a little bit more about yourself in addition to kind of that very brief introduction that I that I just gave. Oh, sure. Um, so I'm a member of the Heltzuk First Nation, or the, how we say it is Heltzjelch, um, but we say Heltzuk in English. Um, and I was born in Namgus Territory in Alert Bay, British Columbia, which is a little tiny island off the northeast coast of Vancouver Island, which is where my great-grandfather on my dad's side settled as a homesteader from England. Um, and I don't normally say that I'm like you know, mixed or half 
settler, half indigenous, um, just because in our culture, um, the way that my aunties explained it to me is that you're like, you're held sick. You mm-hmm. just are. And that race is, I mean, I think that was her way of saying race is a social construction. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You're a member of our community. You're from here. This is, this is who you are. This is who your family is. So, um, I'm the daughter of commercial fishers and put myself through grad school, uh, fishing for salmon and herring with my dad. Um, I have like, I mean, I could probably compete with no, with Moses in the desert for like my career path, winding this wandering in the desert. My mom said it was really painful to watch me go through it. But, um, as I've sort of matured into my career, she's like, Oh, all these experiences kind of like fold into, um, circlude into (laughs) the, the gifts that you bring to your ministry. And so, um, I won't go into all that, but I've worked as a public accountant. I didn't finish my designation. Um, I've worked for as director of operations for environmental national environmental charities, both, um, in the U S and in Canada and, uh, started college, um, studying flute performance and orchestral studies at the university of North Texas. So like just the total dog's breakfast of all the things. My mom says I never do anything the easy way and she's probably right. So married an undocumented worker when I was doing my PhD, had babies before I got married while I was on the board of the world council of churches. Yeah. Did not ever do anything the easy way. I love it. I love it. Yeah. You, you married a Latino as what I recall. Sure did. So I feel very excited about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, and you know, cause there's not, there's, there's like indigenous religious traditions sections in the American Academy of religion, um, from a religious studies perspective, but there are, um, not a lot of other active members that are indigenous that are theologians. So Robert Smith, who's a member of the Chickasaw Nation, um, is a PhD in Christian history, um, ELCA pastor, now teaching at UNT where I started college. He's like been my indigenous brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tink Tinker is, has withdrawn from the AAR out of protest because they won't make an indigenous theology section. Mm-hmm. Um, and now Ray Aldred has started to come from the Vancouver School of Theology, just finished his THD. So, um, there's like a really, it's not, um, it's not been a, you know, I hang out with my Latino siblings because, um, they're my other people. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, um, we've talked about the self-perpetuating elitism of the Academy Mm. and the, the ways that this this conference is deeply compromised mm-hmm. by the elitism and the yeah. white supremacy and the patriarchy right. and the bullshit. So, you know, the way Tink shared it with me was he asked for, um, it was, you know, before um, Andy Smith kind of got canceled for um, how problematized her self-identification as Cherokee was. And I mean, she's brilliant and I consider her to be indigenous in terms of like, her thinking is very much indigenized regardless of you know how her she's not may or may not be indigenous i don't know she has not really responded but um you know he said we would like an indigenous religious or an indigenous theology section and they're like oh you can go to indigenous religious traditions he's like yeah but that's religious studies we want theology and they're like well we don't really do um special groups for like specific races really like, because uh, there's a latino theology and there's black theology right and there's and Asian womanist theology and, mm-hmm. right yeah 
yeah, that's just so. Great. So, as for a different episode, mm-hmm. right? Right. <laughs> we, yeah, we can have a whole conversation yeah. about that, which we won't. But um, thank you again. Thanks for saying yes to this, and you're we're really, so we're really thrilled that you are um, you're with us on this. Um, well, so you know this series of episodes that we've done we've been asking kind of a core question to get the conversation going Hmm. and i think uh we talk a lot about supremacy culture on this podcast and by that we mean white supremacy economic supremacy the war machine Mm -hmm. um you know uh settler colonialism you know all these things that that have compromised the the united states and the world um one of the things that we don't talk about enough, and I hope that you won't be that this won't be the last time that you come on our podcast, we don't talk enough about um, indigeneity, uh, First Nations, uh, Native rights, mm-hmm. and so you know I'm I'm thinking that at least here in the United States when we talk about racism we talk it's a black and white issue Mm -hmm. and so brown people get invisibilized um, and indigenous people get erased yeah and so i'm just wondering if we can have a conversation about collective liberation and um we have talked about this on twitter a little bit you know you know in our efforts for collective liberation how do we begin to open it up to the collective? And by, mm-hmm. and by that, I mean Native folks, First Nations, Indigenous folks, um, because uh, there, I think there are 27 Indigenous um, communities in Mexico, mm-hmm. and, they, and everybody knows about them. But how many do we have here in the United States? And do we do we know them mm-hmm. and how many are there in Canada and do we know them right yeah. so mm-hmm. when will we begin care when when will we begin caring about the collective yeah yeah and I think we've we've become even on this podcast um regrettably we've become um we've been in a bit of an echo chamber around collective liberation and wanting to very intentionally kind of speak to the repair that's required and the recognition that's required and the um mutual aid that's required to knit the wounds and, you know, provide um, the kind of reparative um, effort that that is needed for black and brown siblings in the states. And 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 there is an erasure there with mm-hmm. with our our native kin. And so um, what might that kind of repair and restoration um, or a collective liberation look like mm-hmm. um, from your vantage point, Carmen? Like what yeah. what might that look like um, both in from a, a, a Canadian construct and from a, a North American one? Yeah. I think so. I think um, it's interesting. It's good that you raised, you know, from a, an American construct and from Canadian perspective, because I think the histories and the culture around Indigenous and non-Indigenous relationships are very different mm. in our countries. Um, John Rustin Saul, who's a Canadian philosopher, sort of like our, I guess, like preeminent granddaddy of public intellectual thought in Canada. Um, he uh, wrote an, a pretty good book a few years ago called The Comeback, and it was talking about how, like, the rise of indigeneity 
uh, in Canada. We're the fastest growing segment of Canadian population because we make a lot of babies and a lot of Canadian other Canadians don't make a lot of babies. Um, so we have to import other brown people from other places in the world um, so that we have a tax base to pay for our right. you know, socialized medicine. Um, anyway, he talked about how um, in a public lecture he did at um, First United Church where I used to work, that the thing that actually um, sets Canadian culture apart in his view is the difference in history in the relationship where Indigenous peoples in Canada welcomed European settlers um, and lived quite peaceably with each other for several hundred years before Canada like really actively colonized in a way that uh, disenfranchised and oppressed Indigenous people as opposed to like the Indian Wars under Jackson and other presidents here. And um, so there is a very different culture. And I think that, um, you know, he argues that the reason why we have an, you know, so-called better and more welcoming immigration um, process and are more welcoming of others and I think maybe a little bit better at interculturalism in that we're willing to be transformed by the presence of the other. We don't just recognize difference, but actually mm. like learn from each other very fallibly um, is because of that, the roots of that history. Um, and one of the reasons why I refuse to stop using some of Andy Smith's writing is because there was this really great uh, paragraph that she wrote around in um, you know, United Statesian discourse that Native Americans must always be disappearing because the presence of like live, real indigenous people in the U.S. would create so much cognitive dissonance with the mythology of like the founding of this country, which you're about to celebrate on yeah. Thursday. Right. right. And, you know, right. um, that it would um, like it just people get like, I can't, can't, can't my cute. Yeah. yeah, you know, <laughs> totally. And so, you know, we, our, our kids were born in California. We moved to, to Ferndale, Washington. And so my, my kids started school in Washington state. And I have a cousin who lives in Lummi reserve, which is right close to where we were living. She teaches at Northwest Indian college. And so does her partner. And, um, you know, had the experience of my kid coming home from kindergarten and saying, um, in, to my mom, oh, you know, um, the Lummi Indians used to live here, but now they're gone because the pioneers came and like founded Ferndale. And my mom's like, the Lummi Indians are not gone. And he was like, yeah, no, they're, they're gone. Mm. She was like, dude, you were in Lummi fucking two days ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At Auntie Vina's house. And he's like, no, they're gone because the pioneers came. And yeah. and then one day, he could, like a couple of weeks later, he came home and said, mom, did, did the Native Americans know how to drive? And I like immediately inside, luckily buffered by a filter, I have Andy Smith saying like, Native Americans must all be disappearing. I was like, why the fuck is that a past tense question? Right, right. <laughs> and I was like, well, what do you think? And he's like, hmm, well, granny can drive and you can drive. So I say yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, yeah. Well, We're also left. five, so. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, this, uh, this Andy Smith and we're not going to get into the politics no. of that. Because, uh, again, we can talk for another hour yeah, about that. Yeah, that's a different episode. Also, cancel culture is a part of supremacy culture, and totally. it's violent and whatnot. Uh, my, my abuela, mm -hmm. who was born in Tamaulipas, Mexico, um, is a Mexican Indian mm -hmm. and um, refused to 
name name that for herself. Mm-hmm. And when Obama won the presidency, she, who is like visibly indigenous, like you can you when when you when you see it, you know it, right? Yeah. She said she was deeply racist. Um, she said they're going to paint the White House black. Yeah. And it's this this um, this erasure of your own historical memory mm-hmm. to survive in a system that constantly has to displace you. Mm-hmm. So you end up internalizing the story. Yeah. The racist, mm-hmm. the homophobic, yeah. the transphobic, mm-hmm. the et cetera story. Yeah. And, and, I, and I just think, wow, we we really have built uh, a world for only white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, my, hus- my husband's Guatemalan and there's that same dynamic around the Ladino culture and like the erasure of, or like actual um, like racism against indigenous peoples in Guatemala. And so th- the follow-up to um, this conversation with my kid was like, you know, who else is indigenous who can drive? And he's like, who was like dad? And he's like, what? <laughs> Dad's not Heltzuk. I was like, no, dad's Mayan. I was like, but he doesn't actually know the Mayan side of his family because, um, you know, your abuela's family did not accept dad's dad. And right. so you don't have an abuelo, mm-hmm. right? Like you only, like that was like, you don't, right. we're not, it, it's the Indian or us kind of a situation that, which is what he went through. And I won't share that much more of his story because it's not mine to tell, but um you know, I think it does get into um, this, like, w- w- well, one, there's a whole, like, taxonomies of race that we've inherited from, like, Euro-Christian British scholarship and science and, right. like, trying to prove who's what instead of just allowing people to belong in community with each other. Um, and, I, and I think that the quantification of race when it comes to Indigenous people also taps into to, um, white fear that um, we're just going to, like, send everybody home. Yeah. You don't belong. So, Out. you know, getting to this idea of land back, um, that, like, well, which is what does Which that... lots of people are trying to do. The yeah, Zapatistas, totally. yeah. you know, trying to get indigenous land back in Mexico. Yeah. It's happening here in the States. It's... And also, but we are, like, amazingly creative and innovative as humans. And we can find a way to, like, make win-win-win situations. Yeah. Like, just because you have... Oh, I keep hitting this up. Um, just because you have uh, indigenous... Um, territory where non-indigenous people hold fee simple title to their property on that territory doesn't necessarily mean that if that territory is granted back legally to the indigenous tribe that everybody who lives there no longer owns their property but what it does mean is that access to resources like natural resources and mineral rights and logging and jurisdiction to to make laws Uh and um, and possibly tax structure and create or, the, yeah exactly to to make decisions about like where the sewer lines are going to go or mm-hmm. things like that that though that though that should be um an indigenous decision 
and there should be indigenous jurisdiction over that land. And it, it and sometimes the land does have to go mm-hmm. back. Like sometimes mm-hmm. the land is, you know, a particularly sacred part, or sometimes, you know, we need to consider what, um, you know, letting our land life fallow and to heal from all of the extractivist um, resource, you know, like the, um, resource extraction and the ways that that's damaged our land. Like we have to sort of steward it back to life. Um, luckily the creation heals itself really quickly mm-hmm. for the most part, if you leave it alone. So um, I think that that's a possibility too, but it, you know, um, Thomas King in his book, the inconvenient Indian, a curious account of uh, native American history or something like that. I can't remember the subtitle. Um, in one of the last chapters, it says, like, what do Indians want? Like, we always get asked this question. And he said, I think a more important question is what do white people want? Mm-hmm. And he's like, and I will tell you the answer. And spoiler alert, if you've, I won't tell you more of the chapter, but it's like, it's land. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually like the white desire for land and the white desire to maintain the status quo that is what is the block to having any kind of nuanced conversation of what land right. that could look like. So I don't know how often you keep up with the Supreme Court news in this country, but not long ago... I mean, if I didn't live in this country, I would want nothing to do with it. You're right. <laughs> right. But unfortunately, we have to pay attention to it. I did exercise my J-treaty right to recognize the border as irrelevant, so I'm a dual citizen, so I do try to you yeah. know, be yeah. an educated voter in this country, because I can. Yes. Yeah, good. <laughs> So uh, I think Brett Kavanaugh wrote this opinion that the Supreme Court now has jurisdiction over. I know, know. but but now the Supreme Court has jurisdiction over tribal lands, tribal communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it it, it's like another step of invisibilizing and and erasing the sovereignty of Native Mm -hmm. peoples in this country. Which feels like 50 steps back or 500 uh-huh. steps back. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, what do we do? Yeah. Because, it. I mean, at least in Canada, we rely on the Royal Pro- Proclamation of like 1763 or whatever. I probably have the year wrong because that's not the thing I like about history. Um, but it basically where the crown said from England that um, indigenous people had title to the land and that the land was not to be... Uh, taken by colonizers without a treaty. And so for a lot of Canada, we have treaties um, that have completely been dishonored and that's a different situation. And then like, by the time they got to the Rockies and got into BC, I think they were just tired and they're like, where we could just take the land. So a lot of British Columbia is like unseated. And I would say most of the rest of the country that was legally seated was like seated through coercion. So I don't know how Right. You know, I don't think there was actually a lot of consent. Um, Scott Lyons has written a really good book called X Marks, um, looking at the treaties that were signed in the U.S. and some in Canada where the um, the tribal leaders um, signed the treaties with an X mark. And the white interpretation of that has been that the X mark was an indication of illiteracy, um, but... I think if I remember correctly, what he argues is there was an, there's enough extant records to show that indigenous people signed their names in other contexts. And so it was actually like a way of saying we're signing under duress. Mm-hmm. Um, it was code. Yeah. yeah. So, um, 
I don't know where I was going with that. I went off on a tangent. It's all right. We like tangents. We do. We do. <laughs> um, so we've, we've talked a little bit about land and we've talked a little bit about um, kind of the the laws and the treaties that, that govern that. Um, I'm wondering if we can kind of extend that conversation into, um, into kind of uh, culture and um, tradition and the visit the need for visibility when it relates to um, um, kind of what tradition must still look like for indigenous folks and mm-hmm. and and how um, our and when I say our that's a personal our our white folk um, need is to also erase that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's one thing for us to desire to not lose land that we stole, in, you know, inappropriately. Um, but we also, I think, have a, a radical discomfort with um, kind of watching the um, watching anything that doesn't feel Euro like a, a, with a Euro Christian lens. Mm-hmm. And 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 there's a there's a beauty and and not just a beauty, but there's a necessity and, and a, and a, um, an anchoring that comes in the tradition and the culture Mm -hmm. of indigenous folks. And, and so what might liberation and this pursuit for liberation look like, um, in, um, the, in the, in the radicalness to maintain that and to hold on to that. Um, so I think the first thing is we have to invest in language reclamation and Mm -hmm. language revival, um, and survival because Meaning that everyone should have to speak English. Well, because <laughs> I would love that if yes. I could go around speaking. I, if no, I but, if I'm here at the hotel, I only speak Spanish to the people who yeah. are who are doing service stuff because I prefer that language. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, there's that piece, but also um, the history in both Canada and the U.S. through the boarding schools in the U.S. and residential schools in Canada is that. They used residential schools as a means of erasing the language as because they knew from conquering Wales and Ireland and Scotland that if you took kids away from their families and you forbade them to speak their language, you could break their culture. Right. And so. um, Which is exactly what my mother did. Yeah. She refused to teach me Spanish. Yeah. So I would have no connection to it. Yeah. Um, So. But indigenous languages are disappearing globally at a rate of one every two weeks. Yeah. And and our epistemologies are grounded in language, yeah. right? So yeah. And if, our cosmologies yeah, are grounded in language. Exactly. And so, um, you know, there's, there's certain things that can only be preserved by per- tradition, like in terms of our culture and our songs and our dances and our histories, that can only be preserved through preserving our languages. And, you know, our, the health um, people is instructive in that because they estimate that in the you know mid early to mid 19th century that there was between 25,000 and 35,000 Heistok people along 25,000 linear kilometers of coastline like up and down all the fjords and inlets and then um, whether it was intentional or whether they just didn't quarantine like 99.9% of our people died through smallpox um, epidemic in the second half of the 19th century. And so by 1905, I think there was less than 400 of us left. Mm. And so, um, you know, I, I remember 
linking it back to the academy, having a conversation with one of my professors in um, proposing my modern research languages. And they were like, no, you need to learn Heistokla. And I was like, no, I don't. Like, I mean, I do as a Heistok woman, I do, but not for my PhD, I don't. And she was like, no, I really think you should. And I was like, there are less than a hundred fluent speakers left. Like it's a, it's a reviving language. We don't have any literature written in our language. And even if I could learn to read and write it to what end, there's no, like, there's nothing I can access that like, let me learn Spanish so I can go and read liberation theology in Spanish and like the Teología India movement. And right. like, those are my people yeah. in, in the academy. Like yeah. there is no Heltzik body of knowledge in the academy. And that's not, and I had to have a big fight about that. Mm. Um, and now we have like an adult immersion program and um, we're teaching it to kids in schools. And so like a lot of my cousins are starting to become fluent, but also access to it if you live off reserve is really challenging right so, right yeah um in terms of other cultural practices i think um and this is the reason why i'm passionate about preserving the language is because there are and this is what i wrote my phd on i think there are um ways in general across indigenous cultures in in america meaning like from the south pole to the north pole mm-hmm. um and you'll notice earlier I said United Statesians because yeah. I refuse mm-hmm. to call us Americans here, yeah. um, that uh, are broadly different than European philosophical thought, right? And so without trying to create an argument for a pan-Indian reality um, against a European reality, um, there was a, an indigenous the- uh, philosopher by the name of um, Viola Cordova. She never published a lot because she taught in a junior college and she just taught and was prolific te- and well-respected professor. But she was the first indigenous Native American woman to get a PhD in philosophy. And she w- she said, you know, the thing is like a uh, Chickasaw um, leader and a Haystrick leader have more in common with each other than they do with Europeans and just the way that a French thinker and a German thinker have more in common with right. each other than they would with somebody who's Chickasaw. Right. And so um, I looked at in general, the ways that um, our ways of thinking were different and then used those as saying, okay, if we used an indigenous epistemology to look at Christian mission, it could actually be much more life-giving and inclusive. If we got away from binary dualisms, justified truth claims, um, what else? Uh, individualism versus collectivism. Mm -hmm. And so um, those are the reasons for me why our traditions are important because for us in the central coast of British Columbia, the potlatch system was how we did all of our business. It's where we repeated our oral histories. It's where we celebrated and memorialized things. It was also the way that we took care of each other and it was the basis for our economy. And our traditional views of power and prestige came from taking care of others, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the families would pour out everything that they owned into the world as like uh, an outpouring of generosity. Um, one, because we had a cultural obligation to take care of each other. And two, it came from a worldview that saw the world as a place of abundance. And so you trusted that others would take care of you too. Right. And so- um, There was a reciprocity of care. Yeah, there's a reciprocity of care. And also there was like a more balanced 
interaction with the created order because um, you only t- you only had to take what you needed from the environment around you because you didn't you didn't need to take more than what you needed right this second. It's sort of like the quail and the manna, right. or um, you know, just because you trusted that there would be more there later, as opposed to the you know neoclassical we're in competition for scarce resources. Right. right. I'm thinking about our you know these podcast coasters that we're going to make uh-huh. and uh because you know we are talking about knowledge production on uh-huh. this podcast uh-huh. and translating theory to action and what you just brought up is a really important critique of what's happening here the epistemologies that are valued here over you know the panel that i was just in uh, the epistemic disobedience that many of us have to pursue uh-huh. uh to 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 have airtime and and what's the what's our little tagline that we yeah, are so that we're using is, I, we're like unveiling it so i know so i'm sorry Wait, you don't like because you know i know that you don't like that when i do this but you know <laughs> i know I'm i mean it's in the world totally shit in the world do, already by the way um yeah so we we've been talking about um kind of how we would how we would describe this podcast to um others and um we and and we both are pithy we're, we're pithy, we're snarky, and so we wanted, like, the, the you know, like, what we said about this to also be pithy and snarky. And so we've decided that um, we're going to say that um, lecture halls, pulpits, and boardrooms, the graveyard for where shared knowledge goes to die. And that the Activist Theology podcast exhumes community, research, and action. Nice. And so this, this you know, this understanding that, you know, death-bringing systems like the academy like the capital c church like um organizational structures of power whether it's corporate or nonprofit or Or government government Mm -hmm. um you know that there's a hoarding of knowledge production there and so often it's staying within the walls um and it's disembodied it's also really mediocre like really really mediocre thought production exactly exactly yeah. yeah Exactly. So. God bless Ajama Aluo for writing mediocre. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Which my favorite books. You know, when you look at the people that we've had on this podcast, mm-hmm. um, outside of Ted, mm-hmm. but Ted is like down for the struggle. You know, mm-hmm. um, we've had marginalized people yeah. who yeah. are yeah. doing amazing things in the world yeah. and mm-hmm. who are engaged in community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These, these white people are not engaged in community. No, and I think that that's like, like they're missing out on so much out of this fear that, right. um, you know, it's it's all over. It's become a meme in every expression of the word, but like, you know, more rights for you does not mean, more rights for me does not mean less rights for you. It's not pie. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And so, so um, you know, I keep saying this uh, thing about public policy that came out of my experience of working on the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is Canada's poorest urban postal code, lots of racialization of poverty, um, tons of unhoused people, people with no access to mental health resources, living with active mental illness and, um, you know, using a lot of substances and sometimes being addicted to substances. And, um, you know, unless we like, so there's this one person that I can think of that was a subsistence sex worker, uh, like extreme mental illness, like in psychosis a lot. And um, our shelter wasn't the right place for this person. 
jail was not the right place for this person. The hospital was not the right place for this person. And this person was a, a was indigenous and suffered intergenerational trauma. And I remember sitting on the front steps of my church with the area sergeant commander for this neighborhood and us both crying as they took this person away in the paddy wagon. And he said to me, I don't know what to, I don't know what to do. Like, here's not the right place. There's not the right place. Right. We're not the right place. And so I became really committed to, um, like, in Canada, I think you can say it's pretty um, uncontested that Indigenous women are the most marginalized um, in every way. Right. And so, in, and this person happened to be an indigenous, indigenous woman. And so I was like, unless we can create social safety nets that will catch, um, it's a super white name for this person, uh, Meredith. <laughs> Unless you can catch, create a social safety net, net that will catch Meredith, who is by far the most marginalized person I've ever met in my life. It's not a social safety net, uh-huh. right? Because when you when you create a social safety net for the for the low, you know, the the majority, uh-huh. there's already people underneath it that right. are never. It's not that they've fallen through the cracks. You built the the foundation of your infrastructure above them. Right. Right. I mean, there are margins and then there are margins of the margins and then there are even margins that extend past that. But like, so to create enough resources to, to allow this person to flourish doesn't cost anybody else, anything else, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't mean that your kid's not going to have, you know, school supplies or you know it, it, it's not well, it's a this, zero-sum game right you talked about this uh the other day i don't remember what day or what episode <laughs> but it, it it's the myth of scarcity mm-hmm. yeah. yeah there there is enough to go around yeah and yet uh there's no affordable housing in nashville there's, there's no, no affordable there housing no affordable housing anywhere, anywhere. Mm-hmm. but oh, the, get me on another podcast talking about housing i'm actually writing a book about housing affordability and well, liberation well, theology so. well i am very passionate about housing it's yeah. it's one of the things that i do because i'm like it's fucking 2022 no one should be without a house yeah there and and like here at, in denver we should the, invite larry fink to come talk to us about the financialization of housing yes and then yes. we can convince him that that is not a good thing to do yes. anymore. <laughs> but even here, there are so many unhoused people. Yeah. And 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 it's going to get worse. Well, and when I was here doing my PhD, uh, Denver outlawed camping on the street. Yeah. You know, and so I'm just like, okay, if you're not going to build affordable housing, if you're not going to yeah. build shelters, if you're not going to create space for people, yeah, what do you expect them to do? The city of Vancouver just tried to do that, and the court sided with the encampments. Well, Nashville did do that, and yeah. they did not side with the encampments. And it's, I mean, it's a mess. It's it's a big mess in Nashville, and um, they the the Nashville Police Department shot and killed someone having a, a mental health experience. Yeah. Uh, and that and, happens a lot in yeah, Vancouver. Yeah, the um, you know, I moved to California to do my PhD and. 2008 right so like august 2008 uh-huh. and by november like the shit had hit the exactly. fans the you know the start of the global collapse that came from the subprime um mortgage crisis and you know we had homelessness in the bay area but i would say and then 
um, we bought a house in East Oakland, um, like 2013, February, 2013. And it was at the end of a six month run of a huge number of foreclosures, mostly in the middle-class black neighborhoods. Uh Um, but also like just every neighborhood, um, because it took from the start of the collapse in 2008 until 2012 for people not to be able to hold it together anymore. And I think that one of the fallouts of COVID and this ongoing convergence of crises that are happening around public health, around inflation, uh, the shifting geopolitics, and the fact that we're going to become increasingly militarized over the next few years, is that by 2025, we are going to be in a whole world of hurt in Mm -hmm. terms of people experiencing unhoused. Because you combine that with... Um, our immigration policies where we're privileging people with wealth, uh-huh. um, the market for expensive housing is not going away. And right. we have rich people from climate impacted countries that are starting to move to North America, right. especially the northern part of the United States and into Canada uh-huh. that have the resources to pay six or $7,000 a month for a two bedroom apartment. Yeah if they want it or to to buy strata units or and use them as investments i think airbnb is like the worst thing ever to happen right. to um the hospitality industry and um so i don't think that there's actually going to be a housing collapse in terms of the price of housing there's going to be a housing collapse in terms of the number of people who don't have access to housing mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the states you pile onto that, the fact that our um, health care system for women um, and our the overturning of Roe v. Wade are, are, is going to cause an increase in birth, yeah. an increase in childbearing, specifically in communities where there isn't um, the financial resource yeah. and the family resource and the community resource to handle those those unwanted yeah um those unwanted babies yeah well increased poverty too yeah yes um i just have to digress for a minute about (laughs) reproductive rights um did you see on twitter because you know we were both really active on twitter who knows how long much longer that's gonna last they say it's dying next week who knows (laughs) they've said they said that last week too though um but when roe v wade got overturned there was this one woman on Twitter and she was like started tweeting really graphic. Like, so my stools were quite loose today and my flow is blah, 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 blah. And she was like tweeting at like some of the Republican senators yeah. <laughs> because, and, and, <laughs> oh, and I think maybe Supreme Court justices or something like that. She's like, cause you seem to care a lot about what's going on with my body. So I thought I'd just right. tell you in very right. explicit detail. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm like, so here for it. Yeah. I love this yeah. person so much. Like, so as uncomfortable as possible. Uh, I'm wondering if we could talk about power. Yeah. In relationship to collective liberation. Yes. So you are, I think in an email that I wrote to Anna and you were CC'd on, um, you know, the most powerful religious person in in Canada right now. I mean, that's my interpretation. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) You know, so you're the moderator of the United Church of Canada. Yeah. And that gives you a real uh, material proximity to power on some level. Yeah. I mean, I think there's lots of United Church folks who would say, like, the churches don't have power because Christendom ended in Canada um, significantly before it started to decline here. 
in the U.S. Um, but that being said, I am the spiritual leader and public representative of the largest Protestant denomination in Canada. Okay. And um, could I call the prime minister's office and get a meeting with them if I was super focused about what I wanted to do? Probably. Yeah. Um, 50 years ago, the moderator used to have breakfast monthly with the prime minister. That doesn't happen anymore. And that's probably a good thing because I don't think I'd have that much to talk about with our current prime minister, given some of his decisions. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there are, um, you know, there's obviously the people who identify as United Church, but then we know from our own polling and research that like 40% of Canadians who say that they don't identify as religious do believe in a higher power or a creator or God and say that if a church that was like inclusive of people regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity existed and fought for social justice and like practiced reconciliation and reparations with and indigenous people existed that they would might be interested in that and, and like, like we're here we're here, we're over yeah. here. Yeah. we are over here yeah 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 you know because i think there's you know we we have been on the soji journey for like like we started making good decisions around that 40 years ago yeah. and so there was obviously all the struggle that led us to that so like decades and decades of and it, you know we were fallible and still homophobic and transphobic and we hurt people all the time and you know old people are still like i don't understand why i have to learn new pronouns like wow, why what do you mean i misgendered somebody like yeah. i don't get that um but um you know, we we do, I think, have a special place on the spectrum of Christian theological diversity um, that is worth um, speaking to as public witness. And that's actually one of the priorities we've set for my term as moderator is to broaden what engagement looks like, because we've become really good at the church talking to the church about the church. Mm-hmm. And I think we're at a time um, where it might be useful for the church to reclaim some moral authority in the yeah. public space to say that, you know, there are, we have a moral uh, obligation to um, address power and corruption mm-hmm. in our political systems, to um, encourage people to engage politically, and to seek justice for those who are oppressed by our systems of governance and corporate power and militarism and, and all the things. And so, yeah, I might do that over the next three years or so. So it sounds like we need to bring the podcast to Canada so that we oh, can have, yeah, I gotta come. so we can have these I'm conversations there. I'm here for it. I mean, anytime I can get out of this country, I'm, I'm just, ready. Just don't let my husband know that I'm going to go no, to he's going to come with me. We're bros. Look, if, if he comes to Canada, he's never coming home. <laughs> oh, Yeah. We need him. I mean, I would miss Maybe him. Maybe I'll find him. She just moved to Canada. Well, um, actually, would your partner move to Canada? Well, probably because my partner loves the cold because they're from Massachusetts. But we're actually looking at going south, and which is oh. I was going to say, if you ever have to leave Canada, there will be aging space and community in in Mexico. Oh. Hmm. That might be problematic for my partner. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, they didn't get treated the best oh. passing through Mexico, I don't think. Yeah. So, yeah. Although he talks a lot of shit about everything, so who knows what he, how he actually feels <laughs> well, about and- it. He, oh, my God. When we were first together, we had 
um, my roommate's ex-roommate had moved into the apartment next door with her girlfriend. And um, so, you know, he was always with me and my roommate and then we shared a back porch. And so we used to barbecue all together. And he used to convince, he used to try to convince this lesbian woman that um, the GOP needed more lesbians and that like they really needed her to join the Republican party. And I'm, I'm talking like for months of dinners, he was on her about this. And finally one day she was just like, dude, I don't get it. You are an undocumented worker. Like they don't even think you have the right to exist. Why the F would you support the Republican party? He's like, Oh, I don't, I hate those bastards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she literally stopped speaking to him. So who knows if like how he actually feels about Mexico. Or yeah. Mexicans. yeah. Well, all I know is that we went on a family vacation to Puerto Vallarta. He was like, this is not Mexico. Well, um, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Um, and, and, there are some places in Mexico that I like more than others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's maybe for a different conversation when yeah. we are north of the border. But uh, <laughs> we'd love to come to Canada. And um, I've got some friends in um, British Columbia that I'd love to see. And so one of these days, hopefully I can get north of the border. Yeah, we'll have to figure it out. Carmen Lansdowne, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Um, we appreciate the work you're doing north in Canada, we appreciate the fact that you're in community with us more than that. So thanks for taking some time and spending it with us. And um, we, we appreciate we appreciate what you're doing. Thanks for having me. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.